0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches Tyndale Presbytery. The following is from a special event at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: All right, uh, and Bill is up here for more than moral support. No, Bill's up here no. to—that's uh, <laughs> all I'm here for. Help out. That's it. I just—I just too lazy. Didn't want to move. <laughs> all right. Any questions from any of the talks, or anything else? You just want to ask. <laughs> Rich, I think Yuri uh, Brito
2: wanted to uh, know if half the Presbyterian was willing to put forth you as promotion for PMOC?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> Next question.
3: <laughs> Pro
2: <temp>. Protem. <laughs>
3: Does I look like a church bureaucrat to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean Bill does. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. no,
1: Bill has bureaucrat written all over. Oh, him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, not me. Not at all. Not at all. I'm trying to lose the job i God
0: Thanks. The the talks you gave, I, I think you let
4: off with this really timely, you know, because you can't really distinguish between that day and our day. Uh, how does a preacher bring that out of the word in our day in which, I, which we live, so a certain age, call it a certain time, minister a certain place, um, and balance preaching the whole counsel of God without harping on, not harping, but it seems like we could talk about the same thing for a decade. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that? If you do it, I'll give you one more thing. We went through the books of the Bible, one sermon for every book for the last 66 weeks. we got two left. And I landed in the Minor Prophets, I think, at a really good time. And it was very refreshing for our church, and a lot of things went off like, oh, this is really great. These books are not that unaccessible. Uh, and I probably could have stayed there for a year. But how do you do that pastorally with a church and still preach, preach all of them? Yeah. Do you have any advice on that?
3: Well, my, the first thing I would say is always preach the text in front of you. And I would also say, if you faithfully preach the text in front of you, and again, that may be you know a longer or shorter text, depending on whatever that, you know, whatever whatever you're in. If you preach the text in front of you faithfully, you will be preaching the whole Bible through that text. There's no way to preach one passage without preaching the whole of the Bible. Just like you can't you know you can't summarize the whole Bible without talking about particular texts. So I, I would say it's it's really uh, it's maybe both easier and harder than we think. Uh, but I would say if you're preaching any part of the Bible faithfully you're really preaching the whole Bible because that's just the way the Bible works uh, I can't talk about part without talking about the whole uh, I, would, I would really encourage anybody who preaches obviously you, you, know, you have to suit your sermon to what the occasion is and so sometimes you might say you know, many things which are not specifically anchored to that text but I would anchor your sermon to the text as much as possible. The Bible is the means of grace. The Bible is God's word to us. And we want, I think, I think a big part of the preacher's job is to bring the congregation into a direct encounter with the text of Scripture, with God speaking in Scripture. So you want that interface to happen between the people and the page. And, and that's really what preaching is about. And so any way you can do that. And um, I think preaching whole books and single sermons is great. Uh, I, I, I preached uh, through Jonah one time, but one of my introductory sermons is I was, I, I, I think I ended up preaching maybe, you know, 15 or something sermons on Jonah. So, so a lot for, for a four-chapter book. But one of my sermons early on was uh, basically looking at the 12 minor prophets as a single book. Because in the uh, Jewish way of reckoning, uh, the the book the minor prophets were a single book and they actually tell a single story and there's actually a pretty good commentary out there by Paul House I think it's called the Book of the Twelve that actually shows you how the twelve prophets the way that they're put together they really do tell one story so that's kind of a big picture thing you're taking twelve actually very complicated books and putting them into one you know and that, and that's one way to to, to do it and you can you can preach faithfully that way uh, that kind of you know kind of just you know really high altitude flyover uh on the other hand i think there's a great deal to be said for uh the the rather uh much slower more meticulous plotting through a particular book where people get really familiar with that one particular uh part of scripture and uh so you know again as as a as a as a preacher as a pastor you have to um use wisdom to decide what is the best way for me to approach this with my people my people probably don't want you know uh you know, a 10-year sermon series on Romans, you know, where we have 500 sermons on one book. Uh, but on the other hand, if I just do all of Romans in one sermon, or even, say, five sermons or eight sermons, that may not be enough. They may not really get a feel for the actual flavor of the book, and there are a lot of things that are going to be missed. So I think as a pastor, you just have to decide what's, what's the appropriate level of depth. And I would say that any faithful preacher over the course of his... Um, shepherding of his congregation from the pulpit is going to need to do some big picture stuff and some more finely detailed things, uh, which is which is true of kind of any, uh, I'd say, educational or discipleship type endeavor to give the big picture and the details and to some degree move back and forth between them. But so that, that's what I would recommend. I mean, that's not really a formula, but that's the way I would look at it. Do a lot of big picture things. Uh, also do some detail where you really dig into a particular text in a really fine tuned kind of way, and continually go back and forth between those two in your preaching. And I, to, to me, that's the best way to continually bring your people
1: into that direct encounter with the Word of God. Are you are you talking about any like application stuff, this like our cultural issues, and seeing them sure. seeing I mean, seeing them in the text? I don't to speak? want to
4: force the application. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to preach a text and then spend thirty-five minutes applying it to whatever's going around. Yeah, you know, but you get so many questions from your churches, especially. In these days, things that are popping up every couple of weeks or something new, <clears throat> and I, I want to stop and preach a sermon on that. That would yeah. be
2: faithful
3: my. I, I would say, on that kind of thing, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, a sermon is not necessarily the place to go into all of those kinds of details, right. but to some extent, I think it makes sense to do that. And I would say, uh, yeah, don't force anything on the text, yeah. but uh, quite honestly, there's nothing happening in our world today that's not addressed by the text. So th- there, there is an appropriate text to talk about anything that's going on that you want to. I mean,
4: yeah, I noticed that yesterday with the, well, it was the first talk, I think. Yeah, I think you did a great job about going through all those details of the sins. And I, that was kind like, of a light bulb for me, like, oh, yeah, those all compare.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah so, yeah, so, yeah,
3: so, I mean, and, and a lot of that's a matter of looking for analogies between, you know, their world and ours. But, you know, if we really believe there's nothing new under the sun... Uh, the Bible doesn't have to say something about social media or smartphones for us to make application to those. The, the, the principles that lead people to abuse this technology is the same kind of thing that led them to abuse other you know, uh, technologies or relationships or what have you in past ages where they didn't have these, these tools. So uh, I would say that there, there are plenty of ways to make those kind of connections. Uh, you're right. You don't want to force it. Um, but uh, I think I think you can also find you know plenty of
1: that, pl- plenty to apply in the text itself. But you will find you will find the more you preach, the longer you preach, and um, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing there is a if you you're not you can't avoid repetition. You're going to be you're going to be saying a lot of the same things in different ways for the rest of your ministry. Uh, right now, things are new. Things are exploding off the page and and they, they always will in some sense um, because God's word is infinitely deep but there're going to be a lot of things that you're you're saying I'm saying that again you know here we go again because the Bible says the same story over and over again just with variations here and here and there and so yeah we we have that too and so there is there is that aspect of it as well.
3: It's kind of like parenting in that respect. You tell your kids the yeah. same thing again and again, and and you will with your congregation as well. Just like we need to, I mean, you know, we know too, we need to be told the same right. thing again. Yeah,
4: the one comfort I have to repeat myself is I know they've already forgotten
3: anything. Right. <laughs> well, the thing is, you get to be our age, and you
1: forget that you said it. <laughs> That's the truth. You <laughs> read an old sermon, this is great stuff. Who wrote this? Oh. No. Somebody asked me something
3: about a sermon from two weeks ago. I'm like, well, what did I even preach? <laughs>
1: that's
2: it Um. Um, so I've got guys in my church as I'm sure you guys do who are very interested in the let's get a Christian nation part of things you were talking about probably less so in the humility and integrity part any advice for helping to keep those things balanced (laughs)
1: <laughs> Good luck.
3: <laughs> I would say you're not going to create a Christian nation worthy of the name unless there's humility and integrity. And those things act as breaks, because in our in humility we realize we're not really ready to run a nation. We can hardly you know, run our own families or our own churches or what have you. Uh, you know, then okay, then we know we need to start back at square one and, and build from there. I think that is a problem. Is sometimes you get Christians who, you know, they get they they catch a vision for a, a, a Christian social order, a Christian political order. Let's run for president, you know, and, and no, work your way up. You know, be faithful with small things, and then perhaps God will entrust you with larger things. Uh, if you're faithful with those small responsibilities, God will give you more. I think we as Christians have squandered so much that we cannot expect to regain or recover those things quickly. It's going to take time. And so we do need to be patient. We need to work. Uh, and we should not sit back passively, you know, hoping for something to happen. We should, we should definitely be, um, you know, in this sense, activists. Uh, that activism should always be undergirded by worship, by prayer, uh, by, the, you know, by the, the, the more spiritual disciplines, both corporately and individually. But uh, we need to be patient. Uh, because if we rush in to try to run things that we're not really ready for and don't have the maturity and responsibility, it's just like a you know a twelve-year-old a kid grabbing his dad's car keys and taking out the family car, and next thing you know he's wrecked it. Well, I thought you know I know I, I'm, I'm, you know driving a car is a good thing. Well, yes, it's great to drive a car, but when you're ready for it, it's great to have a Christian nation, and when we're ready for it, God will give it to us. But in the meantime, we've got to be patient and faithful and realize that we can't spin the wheel of history however we'd like it to go or however fast we'd like it to go. Uh, who knows what God has in store for us in uh, you know in the coming uh, years, decades, centuries. Uh, because we have the promises of God, we can afford to be patient. We know that time, we know that history is on our side, so we don't have to rush anything. Uh, the, the, the Christian church labored... Um, under great persecution and labored very patiently for a long time before we got the first Christendom, before Constantine finally converted. Uh, and I imagine with the next Christendom it will be the same way. Uh, that this won't be something that happens overnight. It will be something that uh, we, we, we work for quietly behind the scenes, uh, we pray for. So I, so, any, so if you've got people who are kind of jumping at the gun, we want this and we want it now. And especially, I think for us as Christians, it's, it's, it's very possible to be somewhat anxious because we see so much that we've had slipping away from us. And we want to clutch onto it. We, we, we don't want to lose the last vestiges of Western Christendom, you know, that, that took so long to build. We don't want to see that lost. We don't want to see that wrecked. I, I saw something the other day. It's like some Art museum with all this glorious Christian art that's going to sell it off so they can have diversity, you know, in, in the art that's represented in the museum. And these, these are, you know, these are gorgeous, beautiful paintings of, you know, John the Baptist head on a platter, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, just great Christian art, and, uh, and they want to sell it off to make room for Pinos. What kind of garbage? Uh, so, so I, I, I do think that there's a very real sense in which try to lament that. I think to some extent, it's just like when you're disciplining a child. You know, you tell your child you need to accept this discipline and receive it. In a way, you might say, we have to accept our discipline. Uh, if we get it good and hard, you know, we probably deserve it. And so if we find the uh, Christian church being trampled underfoot for a season, well, we got God's got us there for a reason. Uh, I'm not saying that we, again, don't do anything and just sort of passively let things go, you know, just take their course. I don't think we should do that. I do think that we should be seeking to promote justice and righteousness in the public square. But I would say any, say, Christian nationalist movement that does not have, you know, with with all the the, the talk about uh, what's happening corporately, nationally, culturally, socially, if that's not wedded to... Christians who are faithful in their own personal lives, personal holiness familial holiness uh, it's just not going to get us anywhere in fact it's probably going to make things much worse uh, because then the name of Jesus is going to be attached to all kinds of scandal and who knows what else so uh, so I I would tell people who seem overly eager to let's work at this but let's also realize that it's going to take time and God may have much worse discipline in store for us in the future than what we're experiencing now
1: yeah, one of the, and one of the issues in all of these types of things, like Christian nationalism or masculinity or whatever, <clears throat> is that um, our people tend to focus on one or maybe two areas of what this looks like and forget everything else, like the masculinity. They say, okay, we need to be alpha males who are warriors. Uh, okay, yeah, that's an aspect of it. Uh, but there's much more to be masculine than that. Uh, than going out and chopping people's heads off and things like that, and so it, it like was like what Rich was talking about is there's much more than Christian to, to Christian nationalism than than having the Christian label over everything. So these, you have to understand that these are vital aspects of this Christian nationalism. What you're fighting for is not Christian nationalism uh, when you're fighting for these things without humility. Um, uh, or what was the other one? Integrity. Uh, you're not fighting. That's that's so not... I remember myself. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's uh, humility and integrity. If you don't have those things, you don't have Christian nationalism. So you you need you need all those things, and it's a package deal. I'll
3: say one other thing. I would tell anybody who is you know kind of chomping at the bit to get the Christian nationalist you know recovery project underway. I would say, you know, how many non Christians do you know? And I I would say, go, you know, go get to know well just some non-Christians out there, your typical non-Christian today. See how they think. Uh, See what, you know, sort of makes their worldview tick. And, and, And here's the thing. We all know that things are pretty bad in our culture right now. I would say actually things are much worse than we think. Because when you actually get to know people and you see how far away from the truth they are and how hostile they are to the truth when... I mean, it's I mean, it's really, really a difficult situation that we're in. So I, I think things are even worse than we realize. I think, uh, you know, Aaron Rand talks about how we're, we're entering negative world. I think we've been in negative world for quite some time now. And and I think that negative world, there's still a lot, I think a lot of the hostility towards Christians that's out there is still masked and hidden from us. I think some of that's a matter of strategy. Uh, I even read one guy this week, I thought it was interesting, and I certainly don't know this for a fact, but, um, you know his theory on this—the uh, the the covenant school in Nashville, the shooters' manifesto. One reason we're not seeing that is because it's so full of anti-Christian hatred. They don't want that released to the public. And Christians saying, "Oh wait, this is how people feel about us." Well, we better do something. You know, they, they, in a way, they want us to be uh, to just kind of go along with how things are. They, oh, things are okay. You know, we disagree about some things, but you know, no big deal. We'll 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 just keep plodding along. When in reality, there is a great deal of anti-Christian uh, sentiment out there that's very, that's very explicit. And it does come out some of the time, but I think a lot of it kind of still remains under wraps. And I think that's in part because I think there are uh, people in powerful positions who would rather us not know that, who would rather us not know uh, just how vilified we are. I think there's a lot of politicians who get elected talking nice about Christians and talking nice to Christians who actually in their heart despise Christians they despise the people who vote for them but they'll say what they need to to get those votes they'll kind of pander to the christians and they'll get propped up they'll get the donations and the and and the votes and that kind of thing but in reality they don't have any intention of implementing anything like a christian agenda and would certainly not go off to dc or the capital city or the mayor's office or wherever and fight for those things even though they've talked a good game. So uh, there, there's a lot that I think we've got to reckon with. So if you've got somebody like that, that's one thing I would say to do as well is just see what we're up against and just start to get a sense for how far we have to go and what it's going to take to change those minds and hearts. Because again, you know, even your your, your most rabid pro-Christian nationalist person is, it, it, I think recognizes this is not something to be imposed by force on an unwilling people. You just can't, that's not going to work. That's not what a Christian nation is. Uh, there's got to be willingness on the part of the people to abide by basic Christian standards and adopt a basic Christian outlook on life. you so.
2: um, we talking about promoting justice in the public square and things like that. Uh, I had a situation in my church where uh, uh, in our community, you know, the transgender thing, the, the, the library housing these you know, disgusting books and uh, we had a transgender issue at at the public pool where a female, you know, walked around with a top off, and said, no, I'm a biological male sort of thing, and it sparked a lot of stuff in our community, and uh, one of the guys from church then helped create a group called Protect My Innocence, and so it's it's kind of like a quasi-political sort of group uh, that, you know, trying to bring light to the transgender issue and whatnot. Our church is located, you know, right next to the the baseball fields, and they asked us if we would put one of the signs on our church property, and so as people are going to the baseball fields, they see this "Protect My Innocence" sign. And I said no. Session said no. We're not going to put any. We're not going to put any signs on the church property. He pushed back against it, and I said, you know what? I'll bring it to my elders, and I will ask people who are way smarter than me what you think so i'm asking you what do you think do you think of, and then you know would you put uh, an, an end abortion sign on your church property would you put a protect my innocence stop transgenderism or whatever would you put a sign like that in order to you know try to bring righteousness a message of righteousness sort of thing to the public square would you do that on your church
3: property? Let, let me ask you this uh, I, i'm going to ask i'm going to answer your question with a question first okay. When your elders said no, what was their rationale?
2: Yeah, yeah, we just said uh, we don't want to put any signs on the church yeah. property. Like, like if we do put if we do put a, do put a, a sign on the church property, it'll be like maybe like hey, like believe in Jesus or something. Like, yeah. like I, I just we weren't comfortable with the idea I, I, of, of even how to think through it. I think and so that's why we kind of just said no at, 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 at that time.
3: Yeah, I, I'd probably want to know more about any particular group sure. uh, that wants to have their sign put in a, you know, in a, uh, you know, say on church property. Uh, just because obviously you always run the risk of what else is there, you know, that could be associated with this group that I'm not, you know, not sure. aware of. So, so, so there's always that danger, and I think that's one thing you'd have to be very cautious of. And so in that sense, I'd say your elders made the safe decision, uh, you know, by saying no. But I would, I would say that I'm not necessarily opposed to the church to some degree getting mixed in with partisan politics because to me it seems inescapable. I think there's a desire, and I'm not saying at all this is what your elders did, so I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't criticize their decision at all. My guess is that my elders would do the same thing. The one thing I would say is that we need to make sure that in our desire to not get ourselves entangled in some political you know, movement of that sort that at the same time we recognize that there's no way to really be, say, above the fray and kind of stay out of the messiness uh, that comes with it. I think there's a question as to exactly what the institutional church's role mm. is in that, and that's, that's probably going to vary somewhat depending on the situation. Um, but uh, I think it's inevitable that, you know, in the so-called culture wars of the day, the church is going to take a side. Everybody is going to know or need to know what side, what that looks like. I mean, the church ought to be the the institution that's basically saying this is where the battle lines fall. And I think in our day, and this is very different than how things were even when I was a kid growing up. I think in our day, more and more, um, well, let me put it this way. Um, To say that the Democrats at this point are um, deluded by demons, Um, is not to say that Republicans are automatically righteous, because they're not. But it is, I think, to acknowledge the reality that the spiritual war and the culture war are getting harder and harder to distinguish. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: And I think that's something that we really have to... I mean, the culture war at this point is kind of a, a proxy war for the spiritual war. Like, I can tell where you are. Like, in 1980, you know, you could have been a Democrat or a Republican, and I wouldn't have necessarily known the rest of your... Theology just from that. Right. But now I pretty much do. Like, if, if you're voting Democrat, you know, nine times out of ten, I can tell a whole lot about the rest of your worldview just by that. Yeah. And I mean, I realize there are confused Christians out there. There, are, there, there. there are Christians who vote Democrat, and I think they do so because they're very confused or poorly informed or ignorant or what have you. But for people who are self aware, that's just not an option. And again, that doesn't. Saying that about the Democrats doesn't make the, the Republicans righteous. So saying we want to oppose transgenderism doesn't mean that I want to necessarily align myself with everybody else out there that's trying to oppose transgenderism. Some of those people may be doing so wisely, some unwisely. I mean, there are some, you know, some let's just say conservative people, and even some who would call themselves Christians who oppose transgenderism, but I wouldn't want to be associated with them because there's so much other baggage you know, that, they, that they bring. Uh, and and they you know and they may be you know they may be say lacking in the humility and integrity department. So even though I agree with them on this particular issue, it's not going to do any good to align with them. So so I mean I think all those things are complicated, but I do think that um, I don't have any problem with the church in principle choosing to support certain causes like that because I think it's just inevitable the way things are shaping up and I so I mean for example we've had pro-life groups come and speak to our church you know and that may not be exactly the same as a as a sign being put out front but it's kind of similar we're aligning ourselves with particular groups that are out there Um, and and I would also say that we have to avoid any kind of attitude that that makes it sound as if we could just kind of be above the fray um, because we can't I mean we're kind of in it we're in the thick of
1: it I agree. I mean, I don't know if that really answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's good. Thank you. Yeah, inter- I'm sorry. Internally, it also makes a an, another issue. Um, and everything Rich said, I, I, I agree with. Internally, it gives you, you uh, they put up their sign. Why can't I put up mine?
3: Progressive churches put up the, you know, the rainbow flag sure. and the BLM banner and that yeah. kind of thing. And I'm not saying we match banner for banner because that's not, that's not going to get us anywhere. And that's not the real way that we fight this battle, <clears throat> but I would not say that it's—I would not say it's wrong in every single case. Right. It's really a judgment issue. It's—it's it's a wisdom issue in a particular case. Uh,
2: the story of the twelve. What you recommended? What was the author on that one? Uh,
3: Paul House. And I House. think it's, yeah, House. Is, I think it's just called the Book of the Twelve, and he does—he does a very good job of showing how the twelve actually do uh, give a coherent narrative. The way unity, they, they, unity of the oh, the unity of the twelve. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's it's it.
2: It's on Amazon, hardcover, twelve hundred bucks.
3: I'll sell
1: mine to you for eleven ninety nine.
3: <laughs> it's out of
1: print. <laughs> well, yeah. I've got a, I've got a Xerox <laughs> copy of it. <laughs> I'll ask one if you got
4: time.
1: Yeah, we we uh, we still have thirty minutes. Yeah. But, uh,
4: this could be for both of you. It'd be kind of fun if you could live at any time during biblical history and cannot choose the ministry of Jesus, <laughs> Would where, when would you wish. choose to like walk with those prophets, those kings, just kind of just do some of those things that you like about Pick yourself up, put yourself at one point in
2: biblical
1: history.
4: Well, the only reason I excluded Jesus
1: is because everyone would say, Jesus, if he didn't, you he Yeah, so, I mean, what was the easiest part? The beginning Jesus. of the reign of Solomon.
0: <laughs> yeah. there <you> go. <laughs> There's peace, <laughs> <and>
1: prosperity, <laughs> every man sitting under his own vine. Yeah. That's my time. <laughs> it's not Bud Light time. It's, <laughs> it's Miller time. <laughs> I think it would've been kind of fun to be on Noah's Ark. <laughs> that's an adventurous alpha male, right <laughs> it, does, it does show a little bit of character. Yeah. <laughs> I have I've never thought of that. Well oh, you already gave an yeah, answer. That's good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> probably my first impulse is probably the right. <laughs> my, my, my true, my true feelings. <laughs>
3: You wouldn't want, like, sometime during the Judges' Bill? I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Shamgar. <that'd be> <laughs> Killing people with ox goats, that, that might be a great time. <laughs> uh, any other questions? We don't have to go to 245, but if yeah, we have, have the question. time,
6: yeah. Other than um, <coughs> stepping into other churches that are perhaps um, openly unfaithful as we would see it, is the only way for those churches to change is by those who are pursuing what you have taught over these last two days, becoming so outwardly joyous, so outwardly visible in what you've said, that the change happens that way, or does it happen in the sense that we actually have to go into those churches and change them from within that way? I guess it's two questions. Can it be done just by being faithful in your own church and then you bring people in? Or do you have to go out of your church into those churches to make a
3: happen? If I understand what you're asking, I would not recommend going out of our faithful churches into unfaithful churches because that is, um, well, a couple things. One, obviously you put your own spiritual health at risk in doing that, so you bring your family with you, so that that's a problem. Uh, you want to be in the healthiest church you can be in. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the other thing I would say is that you know you don't have to worry too much about what progressive churches or liberal churches are going to do because they're dying anyway. Uh, they're they're not going to last. Uh, that's just a matter of time. And if you look at their numbers, they're rapidly, rapidly declining. And it's not as if you know faithful churches are exploding with growth in our culture, but they're not experiencing the same kind of decline. So, uh, so I wouldn't go chasing. You know, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, you, I don't think you have to go try to. Uh, you know, fix those broken denominations or broken local churches well, because...
6: So my question is also so I think of good men in the Church of England that are really good men but who are convinced if they stay in, they can turn the tide and what you're saying is no, they can't. Well, so in that case is it better to leave?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so th- that's a little bit different question. Yeah. So so the question is you have these, these, these denominations that have moved into progressivism or liberalism and then should the faithful men in those churches stay? There's a lot of different factors that go into that. One is your local church context uh, because there are certainly still faithful congregations at the local level in those more liberal denominations. So it might make sense to stay in that context. Uh, It also depends on whether or not you see uh, a sufficient number of allies uh, like-minded people with whom you can join. It's not this way now, but but that argument was made in the PCUSA for a long time, that conservatives should stay in the PCUSA and that's because the confessing church movement is what they call themselves, kind of this movement in the PCUSA I'm talking, this is probably like you know, 20 years ago now, 25 years ago. The confessing church movement in the PCUSA was like 400,000 people and the PCA, the more conservative Presbyterian denomination was like you know 250,000 people so theoretically, you had more conservatives in the USA, even though the whole denomination was maybe like, you know, four million people. So they're only a tenth of the denomination, but there are more of them than the whole PCA. Now, those numbers have, have changed significantly, you know, in the, in the years since. And I think you could say the people who stayed were not able to make a difference. And they may have done damage to themselves and to their families in the meantime, because it's, it's, it's hard to avoid that. So, so I would say, and, and also you're sort of bound up then Supporting all kinds of causes uh, with your denominational dollars that you don't believe in and would oppose. I mean, that, that's one thing that eventually uh, caused a lot of people in the PCUSA to leave, is because all of the denomination's money was flowing towards these more liberal, progressive causes, and the conservatives didn't want to support that. So eventually, they 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 you know they pretty much all left. Now there's some left, a handful left, but nothing like what you had say 25 years ago. So I would say most of the time. Um, in these more liberal progressive denominations it's really too far gone if you stop the movement towards liberalism or progressivism early enough you can reverse it in the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod it was reversed and they kicked out a bunch of seminary profe- liberal you know, progressive type seminary professors and basically started over and they saved their denomination uh, the SBC did it once it doesn't look like they're, <laughs> they're going to do it this time but they did it once. They saved the denomination from liberalism and feminism once before. Maybe they can do it again. I hope they can. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's looking less likely every day. So it's kind of a Luke 14 thing. you got to count the cost. Are we prepared for this battle? Can we win this battle? Is this the most effective place for us to serve? Uh, would we get more done somewhere else? I do think institutions matter. And I think conservatives sometimes do make the mistake of walking away from institutions too soon when they ought to stay and fight and try to preserve those institutions. But there's also a point in time where that becomes counterproductive. (coughs) Because you can ask this question not just about, say, progressive denominations, but progressive Christian schools, colleges, universities. Uh, There are all kinds of institutions that have been infected with liberalism or progressivism. And what do we do about that? I don't think we should just let go of everything but I think we should also fight battles that we have a better chance of winning. And I think if we don't, then you have to ask, well, I could fight this battle. I'm probably going to lose it. And could I have been, would I have been better off building something else or contributing to something else, uh, you know, for the long haul. So it, it, you know, you probably have to gauge that on a case by case basis. I would not give one rule to every single conservative, faithful person who finds himself in the church of England or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in general, I would say that's what you got to look at. Is, is this too far gone to really be safe? I mean, you can, you know, if your house is burning down, you can try to save some stuff while it's on fire. But unless the firefighters get there and put the fire out, at some point you need to leave it or you're going to get burned up with it. And that's how, that's the kind of position I think they're in.
1: Yeah, Aaron Rint, Aaron Rint talked about that uh, some time ago about uh, institutions and about conservatives being too quick to leave. And just abandoning, and starting, starting over again and again and again. That's what we keep doing because liberals really can't build anything. They they only leech. Uh, conservatives build, and liberals come in and leech all the life out of it because um, they can't build anything on their principles. And um, so there is that that aspect of we've got to stay and fight sometimes. But yeah. um, but fight early. That's one thing yeah. I would say is you
3: need to fight the battle early. Uh, too often conservatives wait way too long to start fighting. Right, and then it's very difficult. It's like you want to catch the cancer in stage one, not stage four.
1: Right. Yeah. And the Church of England, I don't know where, they, what stage cancer it's in. Four and right. a half. Yeah, four and a half. Maybe. <clears throat> but I do like what they just did at GAFCON. From what I understand it,
3: they basically said we're not leaving the Church of England. The Church of England is left orthodoxy, and so you know, see you later. We're claiming the true mantle to this heritage. Uh, that's a great way to do it. <laughs> I mean, basically, say, you know, you liberals are the ones who change, not us. So, you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. <laughs> um, in Minneapolis, there's a neighborhood that's one of the four neighborhoods, uh, but within eight blocks, there's over 100 languages spoken. So, you can get an idea of the
2: nations being their first generation uh, folks. And um, so, you can't The answer can't be food, because there already know that But how would you go about finding some of the sanctified
6: contributions of the nations? Especially when they're in your backyard. Because it seems to me like rejoicing over those things, celebrating those things, food is easy, easy to answer. Um, the sooner we get to that, the more we sanctify it. Right? we set it apart. So how would you go about you know, come to mind?
3: Are you asking what would we do, like, as far as practical ministries to the... Just- I- identifying or ministry, just like we've got in our backyard. Yeah, yeah. So that's a microcosm of right. everything else. Right, It's all there. Yeah. So uh, I get really excited. A lot of people are really nervous. Like, oh, well, yeah. they might take over. Yeah, or they could be a great blessing. Right, right. Well, I will just say this. One thing that has uh, has proven to be relatively true, not absolutely true, but relatively true, is that. Um, those who immigrate to the United States, if they are not uh, Christians when they come, are often much more receptive to the gospel once they get here than apostate Americans are. Yeah. And so, I would, I would, I would be looking to see: could this possibly be a fertile mission field?
1: Right.
3: Um, I remember, um, well, several have talked about this. That you know, there, there's a very real sense in which in a lot of our cities, which you know would be like the Twin Cities. Uh, you know, God has basically brought the mission field to us. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't also go to those places uh, and send missionaries there, but but there's a very real sense in which they've come to us. Uh, I know there's been a lot of success, you know, different ministries have a lot of success with uh, international students at universities because they come here to get an education and because we do still have the best universities in the world, believe it or not, and a lot of times these people who come from other uh, countries that are much more repressive are very happy to hear about America's Christian story, America's Christian heritage, and, and this, this is why our nation's more prosperous. It's not really because we're superior to, to, to you in any kind of way, but it's because our faith, our religion, has supported this kind of uh, civilizational development and this kind of prosperity. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of faith and worldview and all that. So, uh, so I, I, I would just look to see, is this a fertile mission field where we could perhaps see some converts and then these would be people who might take the gospel back to their native land uh, or spread it further among uh, other immigrants and refugees who have come here? Uh, I, I would look at it in, in that light and see if that's not a, a way forward. And, I, again, I think this vision that we have in Scripture, in Zephaniah and Isaiah 60 and so many passages in Scripture, we it was in the hymn we sang, that every nation is going to bring its peculiar treasures into the kingdom. Every people group will have a, a, a unique contribution to make, not just praising God in its own language, the uniqueness of that, but also peculiar gifts that will be brought in and will contribute uh, to God's kingdom. and. and uh, be somehow woven into the final, you know, the tapestry of the final new creation. So uh, that's a vision that I think really ought to spur us on in that kind of work. Yeah, that's
6: good. Cool. <laughs> if I could just go back to my original question, too How then do you see the, the faithful churches influencing unfaithful churches, unfaithful unfaithful Christians, if that church then sells up and then you've got some Christians <coughs> that have got more to go and then they start coming into the church, for instance, how does that faithfulness teach them? Because it's going to be a long road for them, right? Or else they would have been with you years ago. Right, right. So how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and again, I, there's a lot of different ways it could go. One thing I would say is that when you have a church that is moving away from orthodoxy, those who are orthodox within that church, at some point they have to recognize that and recognize that this is no longer a tenable place for them to be. And so then when they go looking for a church, where are they going to land? We've had people come to our church from mainline churches, mainline denominations that were very progressive. Um, I mean, we've had people come to our church from the PCA and say, you know, the PCA churches were too woke for us at this point, you know, and they're not even nearly as far gone as of course a lot of your more mainline liberal churches, but we've, we've seen that happen and probably a lot of you have, uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them to come to my church from these churches that I basically view like the, they're kind of like the Titanic. They've hit the iceberg, they're going under, yes, they were once glorious, they may have the best buildings. You know, they've, they've still got a lot of sort of capital built up from you know, previous generations, and so they've got a lot of wealth and that kind of thing, but, but they're spiritually bankrupt. And so uh, I do think when people leave uh, and go to a healthy church, obviously that's good for them. And so we, we would welcome those people with open arms. I mean, going back to what you know, Bill cited, Aaron Wren, I think that's right. Sometimes conservatives have given up, uh, too early on institutions when they should have stayed and fight. But in most of those cases, they should have started fighting long before they did. So again, a lot of it comes down to, is this a winnable battle or is it basically over? You know, that, That's a decision somebody has to make. But what I would hope is that you know, for the people you're talking about, faithful people in unfaithful churches, that when they go looking for a church, when they realize they have to leave, that churches like ours are attractive to them because they see a very vibrant orthodoxy. They they, they see those things we talked about: the the catholicity of spirit, uh, the humility, the integrity, the the festivity. That they're drawn to those kinds of things, um, and so we become a you know a, a a great you know destination for them where they can continue growing. Does that, does that help?
6: Yeah. Very, yeah. No, yeah.
5: I'm going to jump back to John's question about, you know, the, the young, zealous people that are looking to build the grand vision right now. i um, got a few of those, too, and one thing they sometimes say is, we've got to fight fire with fire. We've got to punch back against the leftist agenda. You know, they're, they're, they're influenced, I think, by our conservative media, you know, the uh-huh. wire types, and even look at the canon press, you know, they're punching back. They're, but what, what is the proper role for that tactic? Because I was struck by the contrast between that and humility, integrity, festivity. That, that's quite different things, but is that, is that part of what Bill was saying? That there's a bigger context here? There's more than just one thing to do? Or what's the proper role for fighting fire with fire?
3: Well, you know, one thing I would say is that uh, if you fight fire with fire right now, you're probably going to lose <laughs> uh, because uh, they seem to have more fire. Uh, and, and by that, I just mean, you know, Christians are um, we've been outmaneuvered and outstrategized. And frankly, now we're significantly outnumbered. So we're not going to just, you know, um, you know, easily regain what has been lost. Uh, so I, I would ask whether or not that's really a strategy that wins. But I, I would say this. I, I think you're right. I think you have kind of this this conservative and largely Christian uh, segment of the culture and the way that they fight the so-called culture war is through a lot of, you know, let's just say really sort of harsh rhetoric or mockery and that kind of thing. And I would say there's a place for that. There is, there is a place for those things. You see that in the Bible. Uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, the Winsome police would not have liked what Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. Uh, but it was the right thing to do. You know, um, some of these things are deserving of mockery. And sometimes mockery can open people's eyes. You know, um, now I think when, when we engage in mockery, we need to be careful. You know, Elijah mocked the false gods. Um, I, I think we'd want to be careful, like when you talk about transgenderism, that it's clear that you're when you... We we have to distinguish transgenderism as a political movement, which we strongly oppose, from those who experience gender dysphoria who may overlap in the sense that some of them are political activists, but they're also people who uh, we need to be compassionate towards because if we really do want to help them, Uh, overcome their gender dysphoria and repent of whatever sins are are, are behind that and then also deal with whatever, uh, say, shame is a a part of that. Uh, If we're going to do that, they have to experience the compassion of Christ through us. And otherwise we don't really have anything for them other than condemnation, and obviously that, that's not going to be helpful. So we want to be people who are known for our commitment to truth and our commitment to being compassionate, and we need to distinguish movements from people who may get all caught up into them. I mean, that that, that, that is one thing that I think is very, very important. But I, I would go back and say the same kind of thing. I would say, go get to know some non-Christians. Go persuade one of them and see what it took to get you there. And is it the you know the Matt Walsh type mockery that they found persuasive or was it something else and I'm not saying that the Matt Walsh type mockery is never persuasive Uh, I think it's probably going to be less commonly effective in our day than just kind of patient more uh, low-key argumentation that we might make but that, I mean, that, that's what we have to do is persuade people. So what persuades? I think a lot of the kind of rhetoric that you see, the you know, fighting fire with fire kind of rhetoric, is great at whipping up people who already agree with you. It, it's kind of like cheerleaders. What do cheerleaders do? Cheerleaders don't do anything to actually win the game, but they get the fans who are already on their side fired up about the game. And I think a lot of what you see in, say, conservative media does that. It gets people who are already on this team fired up about what they're doing. And that, that has its place. You know, we, 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 we need that to, to a degree. But I don't think that's what's going to win this war or change things for us significantly. That's why I would say, you know, yeah, you're right. You don't see that in Zephaniah's strategy. Uh, you know, Zephaniah gives us something. And obviously, Zephaniah is not the only passage of Scripture that speaks to this. But uh, I, I would just say that can have its value, but it's going to be limited. And it's certainly... I think in our situation, our context, not going to be the thing that is most persuasive. So again, if you actually sit down with your typical uh, you know, progressive American in 2023 and have a conversation with them, what actually works to change their mind? And again, I think when you realize how hard it is to change people's minds, how, how quickly and completely people have sold themselves out to this, you know, utterly false ideology that is easy to make fun of because it's so obviously false and out of touch with reality. Still, when you find how difficult it is to persuade some of those people, you start to think, okay, what does it actually take? And again, uh, if you take that approach, you're not going to sell as many books, you won't have as high ratings, it's not going to garner the same attention, (laughs) but that's what we have to do is find what is persuasive because... Again, I'm not saying that getting our own side riled up doesn't serve some good purpose, but ultimately that's not what's going to change the, the hearts, the minds, the lives of people around us. So I would say, and this is, you know, I said a minute ago, the culture war is not really separable from the spiritual war at this point, that's true. But I would also say the culture war, therefore, is not really separable from evangelism. And so so that doesn't mean we need to tack the like a gospel invitation onto everything we do like every time we make an argument, say, for pro-life or anti-transgender or something like that, that we have to tack on the gospel to that. But what I'm saying is, I don't think you're really going to change people's minds unless they actually repent in, in, in many, many cases. Um, there's kind of this little sliver of people out there. Kind of, it's kind of the Jordan Peterson sliver. where you have got people who are still in touch with certain aspects of reality, even though they're not Christian. Uh, and, 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 and so there is that. But for the most part now, if you're not a Christian, you've lost all touch with reality. And of course, if you are a Christian, you're in touch with reality. Well, how do we get those people back in touch with reality? I don't see how they get back in touch with reality without getting back in touch with God. And in a way, that makes evangelism foundational to what we're doing in the culture war. People want to ask, okay, how do we, how do we recapture the West? How do we, you know, how do we save Western civilization? How do we? Uh, you know, I hate to use this kind of rhetoric, but take back our country, that kind of thing. It's impo- You will not do so strictly through political means or culture warrior means. It's going to take evangelism. And we all know how hard evangelism is. I mean, how many conversions from unbelief have all of us and all of our churches put together seen, say, in the last year? I mean, how many? Mm-hmm. How many conversions from people, say, out of a truly non-Christian, progressive Worldview and lifestyle, how many of those conversions are we seeing? And if we're not seeing that many, then we got to recognize okay, we really have our work cut out for us.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. There's another aspect to that, too, that I don't think is appreciated as much, and that is um, people see, like Elijah, and they see him literally fighting fire with fire, or non fire with fire. and uh, they, see his, they see his rhetoric. They see his mockery. They see John the Baptist and addressing Herod. Um, but you don't hear much about Obadiah, the prophet who's hiding prophets, who's in the court of Ahab, who, uh, who's doing the work of the Lord not in the same way as Elijah. Elijah ends up and he's, they're killing all the prophets. <laughs> uh, uh, of Baal. Um Obadiah he's he's saving all he's saving all these people. You've got you've got Daniel, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, when they faced it, they uh, they stood and they stood. But you have to ask, how did they get to that position in the first place? Because they were high up in the government in in Babylon, um, and they did they didn't do that by you know just blasting Nebuchadnezzar every chance they got. They worked their, they worked their way up, and I, I mean, maybe that falls into the winsome, <laughs> I, d- I doubt it, because they never compromised anything. But they did, but they quietly worked their way up. And there is a place, you know, Doug Wilson is very good at marching onto a campus, taking fire, debating, and a lot of those times, those those kinds of debates, like Greg Bonson when he debated Stein, he wasn't trying to convert Stein. Stein probably wasn't going to be converted. It was the guys outside on the on the outer uh, who were listening, possibly. And then the Obadiahs come along and say, "Hey, what do you think about it? That guy, I don't like that guy." Well, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about all these other things. So. But a lot of people see Doug or somebody like him and they think everybody ought to be just like that. And it's like, no, you ought not. Uh, Maybe there are some people who should be. Maybe there are more people who should be. But maybe we need less of that, more of another. Maybe that's just Doug's niche in the kingdom Um, or Elijah. Uh, you know but there's there's always there's always those differences and that, that's how the body of Christ works together again the problem is we get focused on one method or something like that and we think this is the way this is how we do it and fighting fire with fire Matt Walsh serves a purpose um, uh, but that is not the way to do it I
5: wanted a quick follow up you mentioned Jordan Peterson twice now I know he's, <laughs> is he a cold belligerent with us or is he dangerous People have been, I've heard both
3: sides of that. Yeah, well, and I would, yeah, I I would say both. I mean, you know, he 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 seems to be (laughs) getting a secular version of Saphonite. Yeah. It's
5: like, if you want to fix the world, don't leave your room. Right, right. There's a lot of integrity things that he's pushing for that I think really speak to young men. Yeah. But
3: But he also stops far short of the actual goal. Right. And and so that, yeah, obviously, you know, he's only going to go so far. So I think he's helpful. You know, he's one helpful voice. I mean, we ought to, you know, insofar as he is an ally on certain issues, we should just appreciate that. Uh, I would love to see him become a believer and and go that direction. But um, so long as he's not a believer, there's, the, you know, he, he is, however useful he might be, it's still a very limited usefulness. One other thing, Bill, you the, I like, I, you know, the... the the, uh, the comparison between, say, Elijah and Obadiah, you know, you have insiders and outsiders, and this is really, really important to think through, because one thing that I think has happened in our circles, you know, so you've got Elijah, who's kind of working on the outside and being very openly confrontational, and then obviously Obadiah, who's part of the wicked administration, but functioning in a very righteous way within it, but obviously in a quiet way. He's not always wearing his faith on his sleeve. Um, and I think we need room for both. Um, one issue I have, like with, say, some versions of, say, Dreyer's Benedict option is that it doesn't li- really leave room for both of these. But I also have noticed some people in our circles, um, and I'm not saying this, this is due to Dreyer's influence, I think it's probably some other things, but who, who also don't really leave room for that insider. So, for example, if you work in a large American corporation right now, you will inevitably, inevitably be subjected to things like diversity training. And there are some Christians who would say, well, you just ought to walk away from that. How can you work in a place like this? How can you work for a company that, uh, you know, supports these kinds of things? Well, how could Daniel work in several different pagan administrations and remain faithful? How could Obadiah be in this administration and still remain faithful? You can not do it, and we must do it. Uh, as much as the university has just gone to hell, we still need Christians, including Christian men, going to the university where they can pursue those careers for which the university is a prerequisite. If we say no Christian should go to college anymore because it's so terrible, then that means you're never going to have a Christian doctor. You're probably never going to have a Christian uh, hold a high political office. You're never going to have a Christian holding a high-ranking position in a corporation where they could actually have influence to reverse the tide on some of these things. Okay? Now, the trick is to get there, to get to that position without compromising so that when you are finally there, you can do some good. But you see that with Obadiah, as a great example. Or you see that with Daniel. And Daniel had to very patiently sort of bide his time, and then finally Nebuchadnezzar converts and sends out this theocratic decree. You know, everybody's got to respect the God of Daniel. Okay? Um, are there Christians in the Biden administration? I mean, not, not any that I know of. Uh, but we do need Christians in all kinds of places, just sort of sprinkled through. Uh, you know, and 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 they need to be highly competent, they need to be uh, very wise, you know, wise as serpents, and they need to have uh, the support of other Christians to sort of help them navigate the challenges that come with where they are. We will not make any big dent in the culture if we just walk away from all these positions of cultural influence. So this is kind of a... Uh, a balancing act that we're going to have to deal with. There's going to be a kind of tension that a lot of Christians have to live with of working within a a corporation or an administration, uh, working in a context that's very hostile to your faith, where without compromise you manage to navigate that to the point where you get to where now you can finally have some influence and push back. And that's a very hard thing to do, but I don't see how we change things without it. We know from the New Testament, there were Christians in Caesar's household, in Caesar's administration. So, you know, and that, could, you know, had, had to be, I think, probably as, at least as bad as the Biden administration. So, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're you know, persecuting, you know, or not far away from persecuting Christians. So I would just say that, that that's something that we need to think about is what that looks like. And we need to be training people in our churches how to handle those kind of situations, that's what it's gonna take, and it does require a degree of savviness. Um, Another example of this would be running for political office. How do you run for political office as a Christian in today's world? Obviously, you'd wanna lay your cards on the table in terms of your basic convictions, but I think there also may be things that you would do or just simply not address or issues you might sidestep, because the whole point of running for office is to get elected, and you don't wanna sabotage yourself right outside of the gate. I think there are ways of doing that where you're you're faithful but you're not saying everything you possibly could say about an issue or you're not saying every thought you've ever had on some particular topic and certainly in today's world the way things are you'll probably get exposed sooner or later and you know that'll be it but I I think there are ways that Christians can wisely approach these things where we could uh, put ourselves in positions of influence but we should not act like it's gonna be easy but I think we should also not take would know, would be an easy approach, too, of just saying, well, we're just going to walk away from that and not have anything to do with it. You know, we're not going to have anybody you know, that goes to uh, the big university because it's too dangerous. We need to have some people go to the university. We're not going to have anybody get involved in political office because, you know, for these reasons. You might have to serve in an administration you don't completely agree with. Well, okay, you might, but other, if you don't do that, you never have any opportunity. And we have plenty of examples in Scripture of men who did this faithfully and we need to study those examples see how they did it and then emulate them because we live in comparable circumstances
1: all right it's time we are at we are at time yeah you want to close us out here
0: and blessings.